welcome everyone uh, to the final session of the webinar series on demystifying clinical trials and updates in COVID-19. My name is Shamni Sisampu. I'm a public health physician, as well as the head of the Center for Clinical Outcome Research from the Institute of Clinical Research. This is a three-part series of a webinar that has been running from the 14th of July, and a wide variety of topics have been covered, ranging from various types of clinical trials, Malaysia's experience in COVID-19 clinical trials, and now, today, the role of social media in clinical trials. All these webinars are organized by the Institute of Clinical Research in the, from the National Institutes of Health. Today, we are very fortunate to have two senior consultants who are not only well-known amongst the clinical research fraternity, but more importantly, authorities in the field of medical ethics. At this juncture, I am delighted to announce my co-host and a very good friend, Dr. Akmal Yusuf, the CEO of Clinical Research Malaysia. Thank you, Dr. for your kind introduction. Welcome everyone from different kinds of me social media. Uh, we are very grateful to have you to join us today. Ladies and gentlemen, this afternoon, we are indeed honored and privileged we have two experts with experience vastly in clinical trials and clinical research ethics, Dr. Chang Kianmeng and Dr. Haja Salida Abdulaziz. They will share their experience and insights on two main topics, which is the introduction to the phase two and three clinical trials in Malaysia. Secondly, social media, the new tool of clinical trial. I would like to thank our panelists, Dr. Chang and Dr. Salina, for taking their time off to join us this afternoon. Thanks, Akmal. Indeed. Let me introduce the first speaker for today. It's none other than Dr. Chang Kiangming, who is currently a consultant hematologist and transplant physician, as well as the laboratory director of the Sunway Medical Center. He was previously the national head of the hematology services at MOH, as well as the head of department of hematology of hospital at AMPA. It amazes me that with all that portfolio, he was also the, able to be the, at that time, the chairman of the medical research ethics committee. Therefore, it's not surprising that his, in his current portfolio, or his, he includes being the chair of the Sunway Medical Center Independent Research Ethics Committee. Without further ado, I would like to invite Dr. Chang to deliver his talk. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Dr. Shamini, and uh, welcome to uh, today's session on uh, this webinar on uh, introduction to phase two and three clinical trials. Uh, I think this uh, webinar is timely because there's never been a more urgent need to, uh, to do clinical trials, especially when we are facing a, a, a serious uh, pandemic of this nature. Essentially, the outline will be on drug discovery and development, and I'll just give the audience a basic uh, out, uh, knowledge on phase two and phase three clinical trials. And before I end up, maybe I'll just have one or two slides on the challenges that we face uh, regarding clinical trial research during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, as you all know, the road to drug delivery and uh, to drug delivery and development and approval is a very tedious process. It is also a highly regulated one uh, and is tightly uh, regulated by our drug regulatory uh, authorities. We must always remember that uh, safety is the priority uh, as, uh, in the development of drugs, followed by efficacy. And out of the 10,000 uh, drugs that are always submitted as uh, investigational new drugs for testing, uh, maybe only one drug finally end up in the drug approval list. Uh, therefore, it's not only costly and it is very tedious. Uh, and this, but however, this process has been made a, a little bit uh, more uh, uniform uh, with the International Conference on Harmonization so that we can bring drugs quicker to most countries worldwide. I just want to remind the audience that, you know, some people may think that it is uh, not ethical to, uh, to think about clinical trials, especially when we are facing uh, such a lot of pressure during the pandemic. But actually, it is during this time of pandemic that, you know, uh, it is critical you know, to the health of the population that we need to develop more safe and effective diagnostic tools, therapeutic interventions and drugs, as well as vaccine products 
And all these processes depend on clinical trials. I'll start off with phase two clinical trial. As you know that, you know, following uh, preclinical studies and animal studies, and then phase one studies in human volunteers where drugs are tested for safety and maximum toler uh, tolerable dose, uh, these drugs then enter what we call phase two clinical trials. Phase two clin clinical trials usually involve small groups of uh, patients of with a particular disease of interest. Sorry about this. <laughs> this Tower B Level 3 ICU 9. I repeat, good rainbow at Tower B Level 3 ICU 9. Thank you. Sorry about the, the interruption. Uh, so usually phase two clinical trials involve part, uh, small groups of participants out of about 100 patients or so with that particular disease uh, uh, of interest. Uh, it usually takes a few months to a few years. And usually up out of the phase two clinical trials that we conduct, maybe one third only move to phase three. These phase two clinical trials are sometimes called therapeutic exploratory. What we do is that we test these drugs on a small number of patients with the intention primarily to test their safety, the pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. And then with these objective results, it helps determine what we will be the optimal dose the dose frequencies and the administration routes, as well as the relevant endpoints that we need to design for phase three. At the end of the phase two trials, usually the drug sponsors or the sponsor investigators will submit the data to the regulatory agencies. And then they would then decide whether it is viable to continue to phase three, uh, which is the dose and what are the research questions that we need to, uh, to design. These studies, however, are not large enough to show whether the drug will be beneficial or efficacious. So it's important that when we are conducting phase two clinical trials, we need to remind our participants that, you know, these trials may not necessarily and often do not uh, benefit the, uh, the uh, participants. So this is just a diagram uh, uh, on the objectives of phase two clinical trials. It is uh, called therapeutic exploratory. And essentially it is to understand the drug disease effect and find the dose, the optimum dose uh, that we need to test out for in the future uh, uh, ther uh, therapy. Following a phase two trial, we then have a phase three trial. Phase three trial is really the therapeutic trial or what we call a pivotal trial. These are the large trials that we, we design to test the efficacy of a, a, the drug or the uh, intervention. Usually it involves 1,000 to 30,000 volunteers who have that particular disease or condition that we wish to study. And usually these studies are longer, sometimes one up to four years or maybe even longer. And out of the phase three clinical trials that we do, maybe a quarter or one third of this drug will finally get registered. So we sometimes call phase three clinical trials, pivotal trials or therapeutic trials, which involve a larger and more diverse but target population. It can range up to 30,000 uh, participants. And our primary objective is to confirm efficacy as well as to estimate the incidence of common adverse reactions. It's also uh, important to understand that even within this number of participants, sometimes rarer adverse uh, reactions are not elicited. And that's why we drug regulatory agencies sometimes also require that we continue monitoring the drugs in, in the context of a phase four clinical trials to, to elicit the rarer complications. One of the examples that I can uh, show is the, uh, the AstraZeneca uh, uh, viral vector vaccine trials. You know, in the uh, compilation of randomized controlled study that was done in 23,000 participants, of which about 12,000 participants got the vaccine of, uh, of interest, you know, none of these participants uh, were noted to have developed complications of thrombosis or thrombocytopenia. There were only two transverse myelitis that were described which suggests that, which uh, indicates to us the need to follow up patients longer and to monitor these, uh, these interventions longer in order to elicit uh, rarer complications. So again, this is a cartoon showing you uh, the objectives of a phase three clinical trials. It is uh, called therapeutic confirmatory or what we call pivotal trials. And uh, this is the trial that will determine the efficacy of the drug uh, with more robust uh, safety uh, evaluation and risk benefit information. So closer to home, uh, how have we been doing? Uh, this is a chart showing the number of clinical trials that have been conducted in Malaysia. 
of which uh, 638 are phase three trials and 140 are phase two and 39 somewhere in between of phase two and phase three. We have completed 60% of these clinical trials while 116 trials are still uh, recruiting participants. Uh, this is an example of uh, some of the trial types that we have been doing uh, over these years. 86% uh, understandably are drug trials, and these are in the, the area of, of uh, hematology and oncology, in the area of ophthalmology, uh, rheumatology, and endocrine. 8.7% of them are biologicals uh, that are used in uh, immune uh, diseases. 1.4% are device. The common designs that we see in a phase three clinical trial uh, is uh, either a single arm, a randomized controlled trial, or a, a newer form, which is adaptive trial. A single arm is actually usually not preferred because you know it is hard to gauge the efficacy of a, of a particular intervention or a particular drug in the absence of a control group. But sometimes it is done when, the, uh, for instance, the therapeutic effect is expected to be very uh, huge and obvious. For example, in the uh, clinical trials involving the hepatitis C treatment, whereby the sustained virological uh, response rate at uh, 12 weeks is estimated to be above 90%. Sometimes, especially during pandemics where uh, the, the participants are particularly emotional, you know, it may be very difficult to, uh, to try to have a randomized controlled trial to, to, to uh, sort of uh, randomize a participant to a placebo or standard of care. But, you know, but still it is difficult to, to extrapolate the efficacy by using historical control. So this is not a very, uh, this is not a usual or, or preferred mode of uh, a clinical trial design. The more preferred method, of course, as you know, is a randomized controlled trial. And uh, it can be either placebo control or active control. A placebo control sometimes has uh, uh, controversial uh, ethical issues because uh, it's, uh, patients are randomized to a dummy, but it sometimes it still has its uh, effect because uh, you know sometimes there is there are placebo uh, in, uh, uh, induced uh, uh, improvements in uh, particular participants you know when they are enrolled in clinical trials and it is also uh, allows us to uh, uh, assess the absolute efficacy of a particular uh, drug or intervention. But the more common or ethically ac acceptable uh, means of randomizing patient is to randomize them to an active control or what we call the gold standard treatment. The, the idea of randomization as well as blinding is to ensure that uh, equal patients has equal chance to, cons uh, to receive any treatments in the study, as well as to control any biases or confounding factors that may arise as a result of the design or the uh, implementation of the trial. So this is a cartoon showing uh, you how a, a, a patient can be randomized in a clinical trial. They can, if this is a one-in-one -one randomization, we say it is like a flip of a, of a coin or a dice, whereby you know you have a 50% chance of getting the study drug or 50% uh, chance of getting either the placebo or the standard of care or the active uh, treatment. A newer form of clinical trial design is what we call the adaptive trial design. And this is a a more efficient way of conducting clinical trials. Uh, rather than going on a linear design, uh, investigators as well as experts, statisticians do what they call a review adapt loop, whereby as the, the data are, are, are accumulating, they use pre-specified criteria to decide whether to continue or to make changes to the particular trial without affecting the trial integrity or validity. And often this is more efficient, more informative and ethical than a fixed design. Then you know you uh, make better use of resources. There's no point going down a path whereby you know that it is a, 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 a line of utility whereby participants may be uh, randomized to a, a, a particular intervention that is not beneficial. It also saves time and saves money. The types of modifications may sometimes include sample size changes. If you can uh, uh, achieve your endpoint uh, quicker, you may need you you may uh, be allowed to cut down the number of uh, uh, participants that are required, and hence uh, putting less people at risk of a particular trial. Early termination due to futility or efficacy endpoint being achieved. Uh, the addition or removal of uh, intervention arms has it seen fit, uh, has pre-specified and the eligibility criteria and the randomization ratio. 
So this is an example of an adaptive trial design whereby during the, uh, the test trial uh, 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 is carried out, you know, you make either changes to the sample size, either by increasing or decreasing. You, focusing, you focus on a particular subgroup. You may want to abandon a particular intervention and, you know, out of uh, three or four interventions, one particular the arm may be, uh, may be abandoned and, you know, uh, and another, drug is con uh, another intervention is continued and so forth. Certainly, there have been a lot of challenges to clinical research during this last one and a half years. Since COVID-19 was first reported in December 2019 in Wuhan, China, and the declaration of uh, COVID-19 as a pandemic in March 11, 2020, of which up to July 1, 2021, about 182 million people worldwide has contracted uh, COVID-19 and 3.9 million people have died. So really COVID has caused a global disruption to our healthcare, our supply chain, economy and social interaction. And just, and, and, and just like everyone else, clinical trials are also affected. There's been a shift of resources and rightly so uh, with a focus on COVID-19 management and research. And then non-COVID clinical trials have to be triaged. And uh, the triaging of non-COVID clinical trials may depend on the trial location and the resources. Uh, and even without, within certain areas, like in Malaysia, certain states may have uh, better resources to manage clinical non-COVID clinical trials and certain uh, uh, states may be, uh, may be more busy or may be sh uh, more short of staff to, to continue on with clinical trials. In which case then the indication for continuation of the trials depends on the urgency of the trial. Uh, we may then have to focus on trials that brings benefit to society, like for instance, uh, unmet medical needs or trials uh, pertaining to oncology, uh, cancer patients, whereby there is a benefit to the patient rather than exploratory trials. The urgency for continuation then depends on the urgency of the participants uh, uh, needing to receive the uh, investigational uh, uh, product. Of utmost importance is the safety to the participants and healthcare workers. And as you know, we, want, we need to minimize their exposure to COVID. And with the MCO and the limitation of travel, you know, we have to cut down uh, the number of visits that participants may have to be uh, to come to the research center. So we need to be a bit more creative and, you know, uh, consider uh, other options like say, for instance, consent, e-consent on the uh, electronic uh, media, uh, taking, decentralizing the taking of blood rather than coming to the research hospital, you may have to uh, take blood at the, the nearest uh, healthcare facility or laboratory and um, uh, minimizing the number of visits to the hospital and doing home visits, for instance. But at the same time, we need to ensure that the, uh, the trial integrity is maintained and the data integrity is maintained and the patient safety and the privacy and confidentiality is also maintained. Because if you go to the homes uh, in, in ambulance, for instance, you know, it may uh, give rise to a loss of uh, confidentiality uh, and privacy to the, to the subject. So uh, as of October 31st, 2020, if you look at the clinicaltrial.gov, there is a, 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 at least 2,145 interventional studies have been uh, registered for COVID-19. So COVID-19 research is really a very active uh, area of interest and, and rightly so. But I'd just like to caution the, uh, and remind the audience that, you know, even with, the, uh, with so much amounting public pressure and demand, we should still continue to design research that has scientific and social value. Uh, because of the emergent uh, uh, condition, you know, there is a lot of drug repurposing and rightly so. Uh, so there are many drugs like anti-malarials, anti-inflammatory, immunomodulators, antivirals, uh, antibiotics that has already been licensed for other indications that are now repurposed for the use of COVID, uh, in the use of COVID-19. We, but however, we need still to consider uh, evidence-based medicine rather than just uh, emotional-based medicine. One of which is, for instance, to avoid therapeutic misconception. One example is really the use of hydroxychloroquine. And if you remember last year, it was the much uh, touted drug you know, uh, that, that is able to suppress the, uh, uh, the virus in vitro and the immunomodulate. 
and uh, at that time, even the uh, the the U.S. the former U.S. president, uh, in his uh, daily uh, press uh, conferences, was continuously reminding the public, you know, about the uh, efficacy of hydroxychloroquine, and thereby causing a lot of public confusion. But I doubt many of us or any of us use hydroxychloroquine in the management of COVID-19 uh, now. Uh, same as imervectin, uh, you know, you know that high doses of imervectin uh, has uh, antiviral, uh, anti-COVID uh, uh, suppressing uh, uh, capability, but you know, we still have to wait for uh, clinical trials and we still have to wait for the meaningful clinical endpoints in order to recommend its use in, in a large scale basis. In the absence of effective therapeutic interventions, of course, uh, the shift is to the, the prevention of COVID-19. And up to today, 21 vaccines are already approved, but more than 140 uh, vaccines are still in the development, and, uh, and, and rightly so. Uh, and with the uh, emergence of uh, COVID uh, variants of concern in, um, in the virus and so forth, you know, uh, this this area will, be, will continue to be an area of interest for at least the next few years. And on top of that, there are vaccine candidates in other platforms using protein subunits, whereby they target both the nucleocapsid as well as the, uh, the uh, spike protein and in the, in the uh, hope of getting a better antibody and T-cell mediated response. The work on DNA viruses, which are supposedly more stable and do not require and only require room temperature, so it's much easier to keep, uh, and and other uh, other platforms as well. And there are now vaccines in uh, by intranasal and oral route that are being tested out. So this is uh, a very active area and very interesting area. I'm just going to end my section by uh, reminding the audience on uh, some recommendations from the US NIH, and I think it is just as relevant in our local setting. Uh, you know, as we are facing the uh, pandemic, there is a huge explosion and evolving knowledge on treatment for COVID-19. Some of these data are coming from uh, and publications from randomized controlled trials. Some are observational cohorts. Some are case series, some peer reviewed, some not peer reviewed and others are press releases. These are happening at such a rapid pace that you know that you really need an expert panel to continuously review all this data and assess the scientific rigor and validity in order to make recommendations. However, even though you, there are uh, some promising results, uh, it still does not uh, negate the, the, the use of well-designed controlled clinical trials, you know, uh, in order to ascertain its efficacy and safety. But, you know, we do realize that many patients and providers cannot access potential uh, treatments via clinical trials. And I think uh, the recommendation is that they get guidance from their own doctors and their own physicians before going uh, on these treatments. Uh, it is important to stress that all these treatments are not mandates and, you know, the choice of what to do for an individual ultimately has to be decided by the patient and his provider as well. So with that, I, I thank you and hand back to the, uh, uh, the chair pe uh, persons. Thank you very much. My apologies, my mic was off. Uh, thank you very much, Tato Chang, for the insightful uh, presentation. If you have any questions, uh, audience, you ask Dr. Chang, Please type your questions in the Slido. I can see some questions that's coming in. Please keep continuing doing that. We will start to answer the question uh, during the Q&A sessions after Dr. Salina's presentation. Our second presenter, Dr. Hajar Salina Abdulaziz, is the consultant of psychiatrists and clinical epidemiologists at Kuala Lumpur Hospital. She is also the technical service head of psychiatry and Mental Health Services, Ministry of Health, Head of the Psychiatry and Mental Health Department at Kuala Lumpur Hospital, the current chairperson of the Medical Research and Ethics Committee. She is also the head of Clinical Research Center in Kuala Lumpur. Without further ado, may I invite Dr. Salina to share her presentation. Thank you, uh, Dr. Akma, Datin, Dr. Shamini. Um, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamualaikum. Uh, selamat petang. Thank you for this opportunity uh, to speak on uh, social media and the new tools. Um, let, uh, firstly, let's um, understand what 
what is meant by social media here. Social media is a computer-based technology that facilitate uh, the sharing of ideas, thoughts, information through the building of uh, virtual networks and communities. Okay? So you know, before doing this talk, I, I have always thought social media is just Facebook. You know? And I've been proven wrong, but I find that there's a, a huge number uh, or types of social media that is out there actually. Uh, basically, they can be grouped into this six group of uh, type of social media, but there are other types actually. Okay, uh, this list is not exhaustive. Example, I think this is what most of us are used to. Uh, social network. That means social network is something that connects people. Okay, uh, example Facebook, Link, uh, Instagram. So social network. The other one is a bookmarking site. Okay, these are sites that uh, discover, save, and share new content. For example, Pinterest, Flipboard, Digs. Okay. The third uh, type of social media is consumer review network. Okay, uh, for example, yep, Zomato and Tripster. This is, uh, I mean, uh, now we can't travel, so. At one time, uh, two years ago, when we were uh, you know, traveling, this are the site that we, we looked up, look at the review, find out where to go, where to, where to stay. Okay? Um, media sharing, uh, social media, uh, where you share photos, videos, and other, uh, and other media. In fact, uh, Facebook has evolved to media sharing. In fact, today's talk, we are sharing on our Facebook. So, you have some other media sharing like uh, YouTube, Vimeo, okay. Microblogging. Microblogging is those who write small, small uh, chapters or small <clears throat> notes. Huh? For example, Twitter. This is very famous. Twitter. You see a lot of tweets now, especially on COVID. Uh, anytime people want to update anything, you you if you want to be updated, then you be on Twitter, okay, and Facebook. Then finally, there's also block for comments and forum. These tend to be longer because they are blocked. People tend to write longer on certain topics, okay? And they usually publish it online. Okay, let's go back to research because we're talking about clinical research here. Over the years, um, clinical research has, has been uh, evolving to the extent that uh, it's becoming digitalized, okay? So, when, uh, when it becomes more digitalized, now it becomes more of patient-focused. Okay? Patient-focused in the sense that uh, patient is uh, the main, the important thing. When you do research now, patient uh, will not, if it is digitalized, will not need to go as much to the site of the study. Okay? So they will use... Um, the electronic interface to connect with patient at home, be it with regards to lab, uh, with regards to uh, interviews, with regards to updates. So when you become decentralized, patient uh, is the center of the study. They have uh, now become easier for them to be part of the study and they do not have to frequently visit the site of the study. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry. So, when you digitalize clinical trial, there are actually at present there are uh, two types of uh, digitalizing clinical trial. You can either completely or fully make the trial virtual. Okay. <clears throat> In this sense, you need to make the tools, the device uh, from that. Uh, as such that it does not need face-to-face face-to-face um, interview or face-to-face -face interaction between the researcher and the PI. So the, the trial will be devised in such a way to the patient convenience through electronic where the patient do not even need to see the PI. The other one is the hybrid clinical trial where researcher conduct clinical trial, but there are certain parts of the research that uses 
uh, electronic tools, making things easier for the, for the patient. Maybe they don't have to come frequently. Visits are done online. Uh, data collection are done from patients' home by just uh, telemedicine or virtual uh, teleconferencing or video conferencing. Okay, so what are the elements of digital clinical trial? What parts of the uh, clinical usually that people digitalize? <clears throat> usually people digitalize recruitment and retention. You know that recruitment of patient in clinical trial is um, for someone who have done clinical trial, you would understand how difficult it is to recruit patient. You know, sometimes people say, oh, only two patients. No. Sometimes to get two patients, it takes a lot of effort. Okay. So recruiting and retaining the patient, okay, you can use digital ways. Digital health uh, collection, data collection, but you use uh, you use a digital to collect the data, okay? Data analysis, reports, and publication. <clears throat> I will explain a little, a little bit more on this. So, <coughs> sorry. So, digital recruitment and retention. Uh, usually, this is done through social media engagement. Now, it's a lot is done through social media engagement. Uh, and you can also have... <clears throat> online consenting uh, where you can have uh, that bi-directional communication to patient phone okay to video conferencing okay and you can have diversity in recruiting okay ethics approval can also a lot of our ethics approval now is online in fact we even call you up for the interview online we can do the interview with the sponsor online sponsor might not be in Malaysia might be somewhere in Sweden or US, but we did interview online. So it has um, made life a bit more easier in doing research, okay? Digital health data collection. This has cut, catch up a little bit now where patient can report outcomes, okay? That means just with a computer, they can report their outcomes, especially those that does not need a lot of uh, measuring tool. If you just need questionnaire or ecological momentary assessment, digital biomarkers, okay? wearables, and mobile sensing technology. This is, uh, we have a few studies here in Malaysia, the one that's done in uh, Sarawak with regards to the uh, <coughs> uh, cardio, okay? And lastly, digital analytics, where you can do real-world data, uh, interoperability, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. This, you can see a lot now with the COVID where you just key in certain data, you can see the trend, you can see what's going to happen next. So you can, pre you can predict. So this is also, I think, uh, with the COVID, it has been sort of, you know, flourish. <clears throat> Sorry. So just now I mentioned recruitment. I'm just going to browse through this because I mentioned that just now. It is a bigger hurdle in a running clinical trial because, you know, because uh, Practicality sometimes for you to get patient is, uh, and then the patient needs your frequent visit, very stressful blood drawing, okay? So actually, uh, social media can emerge as a promising way to identify patient and you recruit potential patient for your clinical trial. <clears throat> but one advice before you decide on which uh, social media you want to go on to recruit your patient for the study, these are certain questions you must ask yourself. Where are these people with certain conditions tend to congregate? Maksudnya, maybe you want to find uh, certain groups with, say, let's you want to do study on dementia. Maybe you want to find groups which are, you know, uh, support, support dementia group. So these are, uh, you these are the things that you have to look into. Remember when you want to pick which social media that you want, to use for your recruitment. How big are the communities and how many are there? What are their main concerns? What are their key voices and influencer? How many patients providing support to one another? Okay. These are some of those questions that you might need to ask. <clears throat> so what is the advantage of using social media for patient recruitment? Number one is wide reaching. Okay, as you know, Social media is worldwide. 
you know, you used to do study, okay, it's just your hospital. Maybe just the ta your town in KL. But now with social media, it is worldwide. There have been studies that is not even registered in Malaysia that you have people joining the studies from Malaysia because it's worldwide. Uh, it, you can uh, recruit patients from anywhere. Okay. And um, the now, because it is online, uh, it is very cost effective. Okay. The second, uh, the second point to the advantage of using social media for patient recruitment is 24-7 recruitment. You can do it 24 hours a day <clears throat> with social media. If you were to do the traditional recruitment, what happens is uh, you, you find that, you know, when a patient comes to say, oh, doctor, you have a case for recruitment, you are having clinic, you have import and whatnot. So when you it's online, it's easier because you can do it on weekend, you can do it on your holiday. So it is uh, it has a the good and the bad point actually if you think about it. <clears throat> okay, number three, targeted ads. Okay, you can recruit hard to reach group that cannot be easily accessed through traditional method. That means usually if you want to get you know maybe adolescent or young adult who don't come to hospital. Uh, this group of people might be, you know, but you can get them on the internet. You can get them on the social platform. Uh, you want to get a certain group of people that, um, how to say, uh, that uh, you don't come to the place that you work where you want to do the research. Okay. So sometimes lifestyle health condition through keywords, when you type in keywords into the in, through the internet, then you can get where these people are and you can advertise, have target advertisement for recruiting in your study. <clears throat> efficiency. Social media can be less intense compared to the traditional method of recruitment. Okay, it reduces recruitment time. Yeah, and it allows you to identify and engage with people who are specific demographically or group to your studies. <clears throat> so actually, uh, uh, social media like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. LinkedIn and other similar online space actually offers a platform that connect people with sharing interests and information while allowing, while allowing that person to be physically separated and a degree of anonymity. So that's why people on the internet, uh, on the Facebook, Twitter tend to be a bit more free to write, you know, they're free to write. Right? Uh, if you know them person, they will not speak up and say things to you. But if you see them on the internet, wow, there are a lot of things there. They dare to speak and write on the internet. So that is a very uh, 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 interesting uh, observation. Okay. So if you were to do this sort of recruitment for your research, that means you do it through, through the social media, is there any problem with ethics or confidentiality? Well, with regards to ethics, um, most important thing when you do, when you recruit patient, there must not be breach of patient confidentiality during the clinical trial, during the trial itself, during recruitment, during uh, uh, gathering information, you must not breach patient confidentiality, okay? <clears throat> Although the social media is, uh, has few restrictions, who may join and whatnot, uh, what personal information you have to give, you know, and sometimes you might not get the true information. Okay. Uh, there might be some reasonable expectation of privacy. There might be some reasonable, but it's less of an obligation for investigators to proactively disclose their presence. So you cannot really disclose. I think the best thing for you is to look at the terms and condition of each of each social media platform before you start your recruitment on any social media platform. <clears throat> with regards to Malaysia, we do not have, uh, with regards to Malaysia, we do not have any uh, specific regulatory, okay, or laws, okay, especially in research, we don't. We have a lot of guidelines, SOP and whatnot, but we do have a law on Personal Data Protection Act, okay? So, 
please read the Personal Data Protection Act. I'm not giving a lecture on this, but you must remember there is a clause on Section 8 on disclosure principle where you, where you cannot release personal data without consent of the subject. Okay, so read and you must understand this when you start your study. Uh, follow the rule of advertising. Advertisement, if you want to advertise, you advertise. You have an ad where you advertise in the, in the social media group for the study. That advertisement follow the same rule that if you are doing the, the usual traditional advertising in newspaper or billboard. You have to send in the digital media that you want to set, you want to put up. The same thing you have to send to the IRB for their approval. <clears throat> okay, so the next one, other than recruitment, digital health can be used for self-tracking, okay? Self-tracking, that means mobile device can be used, eh? where uh, allow individual to collect self-recorded quantitative age blood pressure, qualitative data like mood uh, during the clinical trial. That means you reduce the patient visit to the site. So now we have blood glucose meter, uh, blood glucose measuring instrument where you just have to run a, you know, you run a device and it can read your blood, uh, blood glucose and it can transmit to the site. BP can be transmitted, ECG can be transmitted. There's a lot of tools now that can be used uh, as a mobile device that can use in the study that can reduce the amount of face-to-face -face interaction between um, the subject and the investigator. Okay, I think this, uh, this uh, last interesting thing about uh, social media is also uh, dissemination of research. Okay, dissemination of research. Um, research is about producing new information. You know, you get new information. Something works, which vaccine work, which medication work, does it work? Okay, so social media offers a unique opportunity to present new content. That means I think we should go more on the social media because now it's the young, young people are going on social media. You have, we should go more on the social media and tell about this new information that we get. Okay? One of the popular, um, I think one of the popular social media uh, with regards to research and public dissemination of research is ResearchGate. I think it's quite, I see quite a number of people have, be, have taken up this. You know, it provides a forum, a platform for us researchers. And as well, it provides a platform for you to find collaborators, people who want to work, do research in the same area, be it in Malaysia, be it in US, be it in Sweden, people can collaborate with you through this. People will uh, uh, email you, people will uh, you know, write to you and ask you whether you want to be part of this study and whatnot. It is a very good platform actually. <clears throat> You can, yes, you can share your research on your personal account. Then only people who are connected to you, okay, probably your family or your only, who might not be interested in your research. So that's why having a platform, a social platform for your research and your collaborators would be good for all. <clears throat> okay, so um, lastly, I want to say that with the change, uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been a change in the landscape of how clinical research is done. Okay. Lately, ever since the last two years, I think a lot of us has been caught unaware, uh, um, caught in the fact that uh, suddenly our, normal, uh, our norms are different. Our norms are different. When our usual norms are different, then uh, we have to change our behavior. So some of the changes I see now is uh, at MRC is a lot more uh, researcher uh, doing online things like um, consent form, okay, and follow up uh, less face-to-face -face visit because there's so many uh, PDP, PDI, I don't know, so many different sort of uh, restriction now on traveling. So uh, it's easier to do online now. And in fact, I've got some that have submitted for revision that they want to do it now, uh, slightly different. They're going to measure the same thing, but it's not going to be online. Less face-to-face, -face, um, less face-to-face -face interaction with the um, investigator. And um, I hope this uh, trend will continue 
because I think this is a healthy trend because it is becoming more of patient focus rather than investigator focus when you talk about research. With this, I thank you everyone. Uh, back to you, Dr. Akmal. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Salida. I believe uh, you have uh, explained to us how important social media is in clinical trials. I'm very grateful to announce that there are more than 150 people uh, that is uh, joining us live today through so many media, including Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and also LinkedIn. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's now time for question and answer. We will look at the uh, Slido. And uh, Dr. Shami, have you selected any of the questions? Yeah, uh, I think we'll start off with the first question. Uh, this is from Anonymous. Um, it's addressed to you, Dr. Salina. Uh, in your opinion, which is the best social media platform to recruit trial subjects? Oh, thank you very much for the question. Okay. Um, well, uh, um, Facebook remains the most uh, effective platform actually for clinical studies recruitment at present. It has one of the widest base uh, for you to recruit. Uh, he, uh, the, the population, you have a lot of population. I mean, the younger, the older, older, because people, I think, catch up. Uh, Facebook has been around for some time. Some people have sketched up and they know how to use. But let me remind that uh, Facebook is not the only and might not be the only appropriate uh, social media for you to use as a recruitment. I think you should go out there, uh, look at all the social media that's around and find the one that suits best to your uh, whatever you need in the recruitment. Your target group, uh, this, the type of study you want to do, okay? Uh, so that that might be you might need to do a little bit of um, research, you know, before you decide on which uh, social platform that you want to do this. Thank you, uh, Dr. Chang. Uh, Dr. Chang, Prof, uh, we have one question relating to clinical trials. Uh, what is your advice in active control trial when there is no gold standard uh, at the moment, Dr. Chang? So this is a very good question. And even in uh, United States, uh, this is a problem because uh, I think in, can you hear me? Yes, yes, Dr. Chai. Yes. I think in United States, the only uh, approved indication or the indication uh, for uh, emergency and authorized usage is really remdesivir. So, uh, you know, whether we should, uh, you know, uh, randomize every clinical trial against the one that is approved uh, I think it depends on your locality uh, and your uh, the, the the place that you practice. What you would consider as a gold standard uh, in the management of a, a particular disease. Say, for instance, if you are using COVID nineteen at this moment for that particular category of illness, what is the gold standard for your? Is it dexamethasone, for instance, if patients are hypoxic? Then, in which case, then your randomization should be against uh, that particular drug plus dexa versus uh, dexamethasone. We've got one question on the ethics uh, committee with regards to e-consent. In view of the pandemic, getting informed consent is difficult with uh, COVID-19 patients or family members who is in quarantine. What is the MRC view on e-consent? In addition, there's also a question on the legal uh, acceptable representative. So Dr. Salina, over to you. Thank, thank you very much. Okay. Um, informed consent, uh, as I mentioned just now, in my, it, it shouldn't, uh, the rules of safety, confidentiality does not change. The only thing that changed here is the platform where how you get your consent. Okay. And you must have a record, okay, for audit of your consent. And people can. Uh, say that, okay, this consent has been taken from this patient and has been seen by this person. So the, the rules, uh, that the guide for uh, consent does not change. It's just now your platform of how you do it. Rather than on paper, now it's electronic. So you have to ensure that the electronic one that you have taken follow the rules that uh, confidentiality, safety is all there. So 
for me to say, hmm, uh, I think uh, we have to look when you when you send us a study that you want to do an e-consent, you have to explicitly explain how you're going to do it. I cannot say uh, blankly or you know generalizing everything. No, you have to send me the how you're going to the consent, how you're going to keep, how am I if I were to audit who is giving this consent. If you can show me all this, it's not a problem to for the ethics committee to approve that sort of consent. With regards to the legal uh, acceptable uh, representative, what, what are the documentation that is needed to prove that relationship and how do you define legal acceptable relationship uh, representative, Dr. Sarno? Uh, legal representative, this is going to be a very tricky question because number one, not a lawyer, but um, even if you look, uh, because I'm talking from uh, as a psychiatrist because we have what we call uh, mental health act, okay, which uh, where patients are, uh, you know, admitted involuntarily, and under the under the mental health act also, the definition of legal representative who can sign a person in is very, how to say, it, very not very clear it doesn't really state clearly it, that, that's the law no it doesn't state clearly that um you you can or cannot do for example a husband can uh, bring in the wife uh but the mother uh the the, the brother cannot so dia 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 punya dia punya legal representative too is very different from um the usual relationship in culture kan in culture kan Kita kata mak mentua boleh kata no to anak, uh, you know, menantu. But then, illegal representative tak ada. So, it's very difficult for me to say who is the uh, legal. That's why sometimes when you have patient who are, you know, uh, who come to the casualty and say, you know, I'm the mother-in-law, I'm giving you consent to do this. But then they say, legally, cannot. Uh, I, that, uh, when it comes to legal, I think we should go back to the PUU, the lawyers to get the, you know, uh, the input lah, not for me. Maybe it's easy to uh, put some comments on, on this issue. I think uh, it's a very difficult issue. And I think in Malaysia, we do not have a uh, definition mm. of a legally acceptable uh, representative. Mm. I know in the United States, uh, there is, and you have to go to the court of law. And this is someone who actually uh, manages your estate. You know, and you have to get the uh, uh, approval from a court of law. But in uh, in our local setting and in many countries in this region, I don't think there is a, a, a firm a definition of what is an LAR. Generally, I think most ethics would take uh, LAR as someone who is responsible for the care of this person. That means someone who brings the who looks after the patient in that particular uh, setting, and you know who feeds the patient, who takes the patient to hospital, who makes sure the patient gets the, the trial product, and so forth. So my only recommendation for uh, for for the participants is that if you have a particular study that requires an LAR, for instance, if you have a coma coma study or someone who is in ICU, uh, perhaps you should actually uh, discuss with your ethics. You know, to see what is an acceptable LAR and how do you go about defining the LAR before you proceed with the study. Whereas in other conditions whereby you don't uh, need someone who needs an LAR, then perhaps it is better to avoid the, the use of that particular mm. participant, uh, you know. But there are certain studies that need LAR and I think it's better to be proactive and discuss this issue with the uh, ethics. The other thing is re with regards to e-consent, uh, just a little comment, especially I know in the COVID-19 is very difficult because patients are isolated. Many of them, you know, are, cannot come into contact with investigators, you know, and they have, uh, you know, they are in a, in a particular room. They are, they are isolated from, from the investigators. And there are some suggestions perhaps to have uh, an audio tape, an audio uh, consent with a witness who is able to, uh, you know, explain to the patient and you have already uh, taped and say that the patient has agreed or a witness who has seen that the patient has agreed and understood the consent. And later on, when the patient gets better, because our consent still requires you to sign 
sign and date the consent form. So uh, later on, when the patients get better, you know, you can then uh, get the, the formal consent for the patient before you use the data. That would be one way of going about it, I think. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Mm. Dr. Chang, uh, we, could we just move on to these two questions, actually? One uh, is about uh, what is phase two and phase three. I'm not quite sure uh, what to do. It's very broad. But I think maybe you can answer this with the uh, question that is talking about the mixing of the vaccines. Uh, is it ethical and uh, uh, what are the pros and cons? Yeah, I think before we consider, I, perhaps I uh, answer the second question first. Before we uh, consider mixing vaccines, we need again uh, clinical data. So it requires clinical trial. But before we ask this question, I think we need to understand why there is this issue of mixing of vaccines. Uh, you know, there are few issues. One is that, you know, there is a shortage of vaccines. Say, for instance, if you get uh, 10,000 doses of a particular vaccine, uh, would you only vaccinate 5,000 people or would you go ahead and vaccinate 10,000 people with the uh, presumption that you're going to get supply later on? And what if you don't get the supply? So uh, there is a supply issue here. So you want to vaccinate people as quickly as possible, but at the same time, you are never assured of, uh, that you will get uh, the same vaccine for the second dose. Uh, that is one issue. There's also an issue of people who are partially vaccinated for one reason or another. Some people may develop a reaction to a particular vaccine, say a form of allergy, or some people may get a vaccine-induced, a rare complication of vaccine-induced thrombosis. Then what do you do as the second vaccine? You know, do you consider a second vaccination with the same or do you use another vaccine? So there is a, there is a reason or there is a, a need to study the use of what we call heterologous vaccination. But before we do this in a big manner, we need to understand that uh, we need studies. And I would say that, you know, there are studies that show that it doesn't mean that if you mix vaccines, your, your response or your antibody and T cell response will be better. There are some studies that show that when you mix, say, for instance, a vector-based vaccine, then followed by a messenger RNA vaccine, the vaccine can be just as good. But if you reverse that, it may not be. So I think we still need to, uh, to, to make studies on that. Phase two, phase three trials are a little bit like adaptive trials and so forth, whereby, you know, sponsors uh, start off with a phase two with a plan to do phase three. You know, has the, has the, the data uh, gets, uh, um, has the data uh, comes in. And the reason also sometimes is that patients may be benefiting from the particular trial and you want to extend them into phase three trials. But these are all pre-planned and not an add added on ad hoc, uh, you know, uh, so, uh, so it's sort of like a hybrid. Uh, there's a plenty more question in the Slido. Um, unfortunately, the time is uh, very uh, limited and uh, I hope uh, we can address this later. But having said that, I think it's time for us to take uh, a short take home message from the, each uh, panelist. Uh, maybe ladies first, uh, Dr. Salida, would you like to give a short take home message? Short take home message from me is uh, change is good, okay? Don't worry about change. Um, and um, doing uh, moving to a digital platform for research might be uh, scary to some, but I think it is the future. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Chang, uh, your take home message. I just like to echo what uh, Dr. Salina has said, you know, change and adaptability and nothing has shown uh, 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 this even more during this pandemic. We have to change the way that we do things. We have to change the way that we socially interact, the way that, you know, we move about and so forth. So this is not necessarily a bad uh, situation to be in. It makes us think about the processes that we have always been so accustomed to and whether we should still continue doing the same thing or whether we ourselves have to change. And, you know, we need to change to survive. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you very much, Dr. Chang and uh, Dr. Salina. From me, I think uh, you have taken the words from my mouth. Clinical research is a very lengthy, meticulous process. You need to be patient with the results. Having said that, there are new ways, innovation, mm. this trial time, covid pandemic, we have been introduced to many new, uh, what they call online virtual clinical trials. I'd like to pass this over to my co-host, uh, Dr. Dr. Shemini, for her, uh, what they call that, uh, short take-home message and perhaps mm -hmm. to the event. 
Thank you, Dr. Akmal. Um, so if I just conclude, in summary, clinical trials are here to stay. This pandemic has actually strengthened the importance of clinical trials. Yeah. All of social media as the new means for trialists to conduct clinical trials. I mean, prior to this, I think the public didn't know much about clinical trials, but they all are now ferociously reading the studies that are coming out. Researchers, especially in Malaysia, need to conduct and share evidence-based research to dispel some of the emotional evidence, if I take your quote, uh, Dr. Sham, that has been playing in the media of late. Um, I'd like to thank once again uh, the presenters today, Dr. Chang Kiangming and Dr. Samina Aziz for taking their valuable clinic, uh, time from their clinical work. A special thanks to Dr. Akmal for co-hosting uh, together with me. And a special thanks to the organizing committee, uh, Dr. Chu Cheng-Hoon, Ms. Yip Yan Yi, Mr. C.K. Chu, and whoever is in the behind scenes. Uh, for not only being instrumental in formulating the theme, also identifying the speakers and conducting this webinar. If you would like to get updates on future webinars and other activities, please, uh, you can email us or read our newsletter or follow us on social media accounts, which I think after this, I need to create. Uh, with that, uh, take care. Stay safe, everyone. Bye. Goodbye, everyone. Stay safe. Bye. Thank you. Bye.